Are you a healthcare organization struggling to achieve success? What if I told you that success not only depends on strategy, but also on the right mindset? At the Mindset Gap, their team of seasoned consultants understand the critical role mindset plays in achieving organizational excellence by empowering your workforce to think innovatively, embrace change, and adapt to new challenges. So imagine your workplace, one where your employees and patients thrive, where creativity and productivity go hand in hand, and where obstacles become opportunities. Don't let your organization fall into the mindset gap. Take the first step towards unlocking your potential today and email assist at themindsetgap.com with the referral code GENCAN20 to schedule a consultation. to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. This is a safe space where we invite healthcare providers to unapologetically be themselves after the working day. My name is Jennifer George, and each week I will connect you with guests and stories that will help transform your stress to success and fulfillment. Are you with me? Grab your drink of choice and let's chat. Hey everyone, what's up? Welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you this evening with a very special guest. His name is Marcus Engel, and he's a certified speaking professional and author. His messages provide insight and strategies for excellent patient care. His keynote presentation, and one of the titles of his books actually, is called The Other End of the Stethoscope, and it's been witnessed by tens of thousands of healthcare professionals as well as his books being used in schools um, of nursing and allied health professions to teach the basic foundations of caregiving. So Marcus's story is quite unique, and I'm going to leave that to him to share, but that uh, unfortunate circumstance that happened to him is what inspired his journey. He's also the creator of Narrative Nursing, which is a site that's designed to help and lead nurses into uh, using proven techniques and therapeutic resources for dealing with the effects of compassion fatigue and burnout. So with that being said, I'm so excited to invite Marcus here this evening and kind of just share with you his insights, perspectives, and most importantly, to his story. So grab your drink of choice and join us. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Sure thing. Glad to be here. I'm so happy you're here. I think you're going to offer such a unique perspective right now for healthcare providers and also for um, even patients, caregivers as well. So tell me what you're drinking today. Uh, Sadly enough, I'm drinking iced tea. Uh, It is not of the Long Island variety either. It's just plain old boring. 
iced tea. But if, if we were having a, a physical happy hour face-to-face, -face, I'd probably have an IPA in my hand. Oh, nice. Well, I've only got just a, a green tea going, so I think uh, yours is still better than mine. <laughs> um, so one of the things, Marcus, that I ask everyone who comes onto this podcast is I ask more about who they are first, because I think it's important for healthcare providers and for humans to identify ourselves as people first. Um, so I know you're not a healthcare provider and we'll talk about that in a moment, but can you tell me more about who you are? Sure, um, yes, correct. I am not a clinical expert at all. Um, I guess kind of the outside things, I am a, I'm a 44 year old guy. Uh, I live in Orlando, Florida. I'm a native of St. Louis, Missouri. I uh, lived in St. Louis for the first 10 years of my life and then really went to high school and grew up what I consider my hometown is a small town called High Hill, Missouri. And um, I, am a, I am a husband, I am a father, I am a grandfather, I am a brother, I am a a friend, <laughs> I'm a sibling, I guess I'm all of those things. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know you were a grandfather as well. <laughs> yes, I, I've, uh, my wife and I have been married for 13 years now, and I got three uh, stepchildren whenever we got married, and they now have, we actually have five grandsons. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, from what I know of you and from what I've, I've learned about you over the last week or so is that you've written many books on compassionate care and healthcare, uh, mainly stemming from your own personal story and experience, right? That led you on this journey. So can you tell yeah. me more about, first of all, about your story? Sure thing. So to even maybe go back to your previous question, professionally, no, I'm not a clinical professional. Uh, I am a professional keynote speaker, I'm an author, I'm a healthcare consultant, and I'm also an adjunct professor. So I am not a clinical expert, but I do work with hospitals and healthcare associations all over the country. And my, my work, what I, what I do when I'm speaking and writing and consulting and teaching, uh, it all stems back from personal experience that when I was an 18 year old freshman in college, I, I was a freshman at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. And I came back into my hometown for the weekend and on a Saturday night, uh, went to a St. Louis Blues hockey game with some friends. And it was on our way home from that hockey game that uh, my life changed dramatically and instantaneously and painfully. Uh, we were headed home from the hockey game and our car was broadsided by another car that was driven by a drunk driver doing roughly twice the legal speed limit. Uh, ran a red light to hit the car that my friends and I were riding in. Uh, that impact was right directly between, I, I was, we were headed south, the, the other driver was headed to the east, and I was sitting in the front passenger seat, so I got the worst of that impact. Um, our car did several barrel rolls through that intersection, and uh, I found myself laying in the street and 
gasping for gasping for air, choking for air, uh, feeling all of the bones in my face crushed, and also seeing nothing except darkness. And at the time, I thought that I had just been so knocked for a loop that it was it was like I had uh, you know almost seen stars or something like that. But that was not the case. Um, I was, uh, paramedics arrived at the scene. I was criked in the street and uh, they took me to the emergency room at Barnes Hospital, now known as Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis. Uh, pulled me into the emergency room and the ophthalmologist that was, um, that was in, the, in the ER that night plastic surgeons that were in the ER that night immediately diagnosed me with bilateral sight loss, uh, bilateral blindness, both eyes, and also a what is called a Laforte three fracture, which I'm sure many of your clinical professionals will know that that is a, uh, that means that every bone in the face, basically from the hairline through the chin, have all been broken. Uh, clinging to life and uh, Clinging to life that night, uh, I spent that first pretty wretched night in the emergency room. And the thing that helped me keep my sanity through that first night in the emergency room was the fact that there was um, a young woman named Jennifer who held my hand the whole night. And Jennifer, every time that she could tell that I was conscious and that she could tell that I was. Um, you know, I wasn't asleep or wasn't uh, drugged out. She would she would squeeze my hand and she would say, "Marcus, my name is Jennifer. You're in the hospital. You were in a car accident." And Jennifer would then, as she held my hand, repeat the two most compassionate words I think any human being can say to another. And those words are, "I'm here." I think when when we can be present and authentically, intentionally in the moment for a person who is suffering, that is the gift of presence and that is the greatest gift we can give another human being. So I've written uh, four or five books and two of them are, are specific to this idea of, com uh, of compassionate communication in patient care. One of them is actually called I'm Here. And the other one is called The Other End of the Stethoscope, 33 Insights for Excellent Patient Care. So I try to uh, give my perspective as a long-term um, patient you know, trauma survivor, uh, what I saw and witnessed, quote unquote saw, uh, and witnessed while a long-term patient. And that went from emergency care through intensive care, through acute care, through rehabilitation, um, the whole spectrum of healthcare, uh, trying to help those who are direct patient caregivers, trying to help those people understand a little bit more about the patient's perspective and what are the, the little things that healthcare professionals can do or not do that, um, that help patients feel that their dignity is still in place, that they have empathetic and compassionate caregivers, and just to know that they are held by 
the, the, the caregivers in these systems that we know and we trust with our lives. Wow, Marcus, that's so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you actually gave me goosebumps throughout, <laughs> just every moment throughout your story. Because um, in a lot of ways I can relate um, being a caregiver to my dad for many years and also being on the front line, uh, being in the hospital. And seeing, I see patients a little later in the spectrum. I see them in the rehabilitative phase um, just before they're going home. So it's a really um, powerful time for them. Um, we're, we're really working on independence and empowering and kind of getting your life back. So do you find now the focus, um, do you find the focus of your, your speaking engagements and your education of professionals, is it as well in the outpatient spectrum too, or do you find it's mainly hospital inpatient organizations? You know, I, I really try to say that anybody who directly lays hands on a patient can, can get something out of the experiences that I talk about. But really, it's, it's, it's not just clinical professionals. It's everybody. Because being present for another human being during a time of suffering isn't necessarily clinical, right? We all have friends who are hurting. We have relatives and we ourselves. I mean, suffering is part of the human experience. So what I teach, while much of it uh, does seem a little more focused on acute care professionals, really these are universal, universal thoughts uh, of just what, it, what is our most basic humanity? It's when we can be present for another person. Um, so so I, I like to think that what I talk about has the opportunity to span not only clinical professionals, but those who are operational professionals within healthcare facilities or operational professionals on the system level. Um, I, yes, outpatient, certainly. Um, I think one of the most vulnerable times in uh, many patients' span of, of care is going into a, uh, is going into a procedure. Right? It's scary to lose control. It's scary to, uh, to have medication pumped in our body and then we wake up feeling confused and we're uh, not only feeling confused, but we're also in a lot of pain. Uh, that outpatient setting has just as many opportunities to be present and empathetically present uh, for patients just like the acute care side. Completely agree. I can, now I can see that perspective exactly, you know, living life completely independently and going in for a procedure and knowing the risks and the potential for an unknown change, right? Um, see that. The, the fear of the unknown is, is ways large in the mind of a patient. Um, for those of you who work in acute care settings or in a healthcare setting at all, um, you understand the difference between a doctor and a nurse and a physical therapist and a respira uh, respiratory therapist and environmental services. But these are words that patients, if they, if they don't have anybody in their family, these are, these are kind of foreign concepts and titles to patients. Uh, and I, I feel like when we take the time to be with patients when they're confused and uh, fearful, then, then we're, we're, really, we're really showing that, that 
loving kindness that we as human beings get to spread around. It's something that we don't see anywhere else except in humanity, right? We don't see this kind of uh, loving kindness and patience spread in all parts of the animal kingdom, right? It seems something that's, that, that very well makes us human. Exactly, and that's where I can see where those two words, I'm here, would help you um, bring some calmness human to human perspective and not be so clinical, not be so medical, um, because I've, if patients are already overwhelmed and fearful. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you give me examples of kind of uh, what you mean about the gift of human presence and examples of being with a patient through their suffering and also through their healing? Well, I think one of the greatest things about, about being present is you can practice this in so many different ways. At the very most basic level, you can just use those two words, I'm here. But when we are present for another person, that means that we are, that we are non-judgmentally aware of what's going on in that moment. That, 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 that idea of non-judgmental awareness and presence they, it actually kind of goes into Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist teachings of being aware in the moment and not judging the moment, not thinking that, um, or judging the patient, right? Which we see a lot. Uh, it's being in the moment without casting judgment on the patient or the reason why the patient is suffering. Uh, it's just being intentional in that moment, compassionate, uh, empathetic ready to provide, ready to ease suffering in any way possible. I think one of the great ways that this is done, too, is, is through personalizing patients. And you may say, well, what do you mean by that, personalizing patients? Well, I was, a, I was an 18-year-old guy when this all happened. And yet, I, I didn't get treated like the rest of the patients that were on that same floor that I was on. I spent my tour of duty um, in the ICU and then also on uh, ENT and plastic surgery floor where 60 or 70% of the patients were cancer patients. They were you know, in their probably senior citizens. Um, many had had massive amounts of plastic surgery like me, but it was for a completely different reason. And so, I always appreciated when my nurses and my docs and my techs um, would, would speak to me and interact with me like I'm a typical 18-year-old guy, right? And some of this was done by uh, throwing nicknames around. Uh, I, I think one of the greatest examples of personalism and care came from a nurse uh, who... <laughs> At the time, I was, I, it was still very early on after the trauma, and I still, I was having new IVs inserted every day because the antibiotics were so powerful that my veins would collapse after, uh, seemingly after just a short time. And it hurt so badly to get those IVs, those new, um, new sticks. And I remember uh, a, a nurse, as she was starting one of my IVs, she says, Wow, Marcus, she says, you've got these big old hands and you've got these big arms, big veins. She's like, your hands are so big, you could hang sides of beef 
from your hands. Your hands look like a couple of meat hooks. And for me as an 18-year-old guy, that highlighted my strength. It highlighted my strength. And I thought that was a really great example of personalism because you're not going to go into the you're not going to go into the 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 room of a 75 year old patient who just had his or her tongue removed and call them meat hooks and think that you're going to get away with it. But that was her name for me from that time on, and it was one that I thought was specially picked for me because um, she was denoting my my strength. She didn't use something that would, um, that would highlight any weakness that I had. And if you think about the, the, the ghastly image of what a Lafort three facial fracture looks like, um, she didn't nickname me uh, cutie or uh, handsome or something like that that would have been an obvious, uh, an obvious lie at that time. But she picks something that would, would, that would show my strength. And I think that actually gave me strength. Wow. And spoke to your character, too, at that time. Yeah, yeah. I find it interesting. I think, you know, Marcus, going through schooling and training, um, we're trained to help patients solve problems, right? We're trained to assess. We're trained to diagnose. And so when you said a moment ago, um, just being present and just being human to human and personalizing and not not trying to kind of figure out the reason why they might be experiencing what they're experiencing on a clinical level, right? Um, that's a hard thing to do because in our, um, in my viewpoint, that's my way of helping, right? In a way, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't take up the whole, you know, moment that you're with a patient, but you're you're always thinking. Um, you know, what could be the source of this or what, you know, what could be the source of this um, challenge or what could be the source of this healing. Um, And you are kind of thinking clinically around that. So, and that's not being mindful, right? That's, that's elsewhere. Right. I I think one of the, one of the things that, that many direct pair patient caregivers have been criticized for uh, over the last, I don't know, maybe since the beginning of time, um, but definitely over the last 10 years, is that, that they spend too much time looking at a computer screen or that a, a doctor or nurse will come into the room and look at, at the chart or look at the monitors before ever making eye contact with a patient. And that, that it's, almost a, uh, it's almost disregarding a person's humanity. Uh, I think I'm, I'm really glad to know that at least uh, at least in many allied health programs and nursing schools around the country, they're using one or more of my books in uh, in curriculum to try to teach some of those uh, really hands-on communication skills, like I'm here and presence and uh, personalism. I, I'm really glad that 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 students are getting that these days because. Hey, if you're a patient, you may have had the most clinically perfect care, but it may not be what you remember when you leave the hospital. You're going to remember if that person actually spoke to you like a human being and treated you like a human being and treated you with compassion and understanding. Um, I, I, 
I think we all just feel that, right? The things that we can feel with our heart are different than what we can uh, maybe witness with our eyes and with our, with our minds. Yeah, I know as a clinician too, and I, um, one of the ways I know that I've provided value and I've been there uh, with the patient for, for my patients is when they say things to me like, um, I'll never forget you for this. Or if you're in the neighborhood, stop in or I'm praying for you, um, or when they come back, like months, weeks, years later, just to chat, you know, I I think that says so much, and that's something that I emphasize, too, with my students who come through placements, is that, yeah, that human connection at the core of it all, um, that's what they remember. It's beautiful, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And so I also think another thing we do in, in health education training and just even postgraduate wise, uh, we're always speaking on behalf of our patients sometimes, right? In terms of what patients value most about the therapeutic alliance. But I want to hear your perspective. What do you think or what, do you, what have you felt as a patient that you valued most about the patient provider alliance? When it comes to the patient and provider relationship at, of any sort, um, I think we talked about a couple of things. I think we talked about presence and empathy. Uh, we talked about personalism too. Um, when when I was a when I was a patient, I I had a one of my one of my favorite nurses was a nurse named Rick. And I remember the first time I interacted with Rick. Uh, he he also nicknamed me, and strangely enough, he nicknamed me Wild Man, which uh, I, I was I was pretty messed up on narcotics at the time that I first was introduced to Rick. So I don't think I was all that wild, but again, it was a nickname that that stuck with me that he and I had that um, that relationship. Uh, there's I think one of the other things that really has the power. Let's let's talk about this from a, a little bit of a different angle. What are some things that, that healthcare professionals do that make a patient not feel seen and heard and valued? Um, when I was when I was up on that seventy four hundred floor at Barnes, I I had a patient uh, physical therapist who came in one day. This is fairly fairly far along into my, into my initial hospitalization. And I, I, as a teenage guy, I thrived, um, off of, off of when my friends would come to visit. Well, one day there's three or four of my other teenage guy friends gathered around my bed and the physical therapist came in and said, uh, Hey, you know, it's time for PT. And I said, Oh, can we do it later? Because, uh, you know, I want to hang out with my friends right now. And she said, sure, I'll be back later. And she never came back. And as the day drew on and my friends were gone, um, I, I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And she never came back. And it got to be the evening. I asked one of my favorite nurses, you know, hey, is, is PT coming back today? Uh, they said they would. And she said, oh, no. PT never is up on the floors after 7 p.m. Uh, she said, yeah, I, know, I, don't, I know they told you that they'd come back, but that, 
They don't always. And I, I was very much let down by that. And I felt like it was a broken promise. So some of those things, uh, and of course now as a as an older and wiser person who has has seen more of the function of healthcare, things come up all the time, right? Things come up where you're not able to go back and do that thing that you said that you were planning to do. But when that happens, I think one of the one of the keys to it is communication. Uh, and we all have that ability to communicate with patients and, and keep them authentically and uh, truthfully and transparently engaged in their own care. Absolutely. So I'm curious, did your physical therapist ever come back and explain why she didn't come back? I, I, you know, I dealt with a lot of physical therapists. I can't remember in that specific instance. Um, but I remember that it was my nurse who said, uh, you know, that just happens. She was the one who had to teach me. She said, that just happens sometimes. They get busy like everybody else does, and sometimes they don't come back around. But then she also told me, I'm sure they'll be here tomorrow. And that was something that I could rest on, that yes, I would be getting the therapy that I needed. It just would have been on, uh, on somebody else's time frame. Right, right. And it's the, like to us, that seems so, uh, I don't want to say minute, but it doesn't seem so serious, but it really is, like you said, a broken promise. And I think the follow-up is so important to um, come back around and explain what happened in a way otherwise, um, or explain in that moment, say, I'll try to come back. And if I can't just know that I got busy or something along those lines so that you, you know, you had um, a little bit of and contentment over it, right? Rather than sitting and waiting. Never, never forget that a patient doesn't have a whole lot else to do except sit there and judge every interaction that they have with their clinical professionals. Yes, yes, that's so true. Um, you've been through so much hardship, Marcus, um, clearly, as you've expressed. And one of the things I admire about you is how through all of your teachings and your stories and your books, how you always focus or seem to focus on the positive interactions, the positive aspects. How was that when you were kind of reliving your story and moving forward in this journey of educating people and inspiring? Um, how was that? What was that like? Well, there, there is a certainly a, a choice to make the focus more on the positive. Uh, I think we can learn from both positive and negative experiences. And trust me, I had plenty of both. I was, I was in the hospital initially for uh, you know, 45 days. When you spend that much time in hospitalization, you're going to have both good and bad experiences. And so I think we can also learn something from those negative experiences. But frankly, it really comes back to the old adage that you attract more flies with honey than you do vinegar. <laughs> I had some amazing, amazing characters. And they, they, they not only saved my life, they saved my sanity quite a bit. Uh, as you can imagine, being an 18-year-old guy and dealing with immediate, total, and permanent blindness on top of uh, facial reconstructive surgeries that sometimes lasted 20, 25 hours. 
um, I, I was dealing with a lot of loss. And uh, I think that idea of non-judgmental awareness, being with patients, that was so shown to me because when I would, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't a, a, a good patient. I wasn't a nice patient. Um, but the ones who seemed to understand that I was dealing with a loss, uh, the ones who seemed to understand that hurting people hurt people, those were the, those were the caregivers that, that made uh, such, such a deep impression on my life and my psyche. That kind of compassion and forgiveness that I was shown, that's the kind of thing that I want to highlight. I want to give, I want to give healthcare professionals something to aspire to and to be inspired by more than I just want to complain when something didn't go my way. That's, that's how I choose to, to use my, my work of teaching. Yeah. So in essence, you're really giving back to us through your experience and through, yeah, through your growth, through all of it. I, I owe my life to healthcare professionals. So I've dedicated my life to honoring that work and trying to help the, the, the whole uh, encompassing umbrella of healthcare. Yeah, that's amazing. So uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit. One of the things I talk about on this podcast is burnout, and that's running rampant. I know you have uh, your website, right, narrativenursing.com, where you blog about that a bit too and share some resources. Can you tell me um, what, what signs that a patient might see um, of a clinician who is burning out? Uh, the signs that a patient might see, um, I, gosh, I hope that I hope that those who are at the bedside um, are able to mask their burnout and compassion fatigue. I guess where we should start is that burnout and compassion fatigue are, are not a failing. They're not a failing. They happen, and they happen all across the spectrum of employment. Right? If you say that you've never been uh, burnt out or tired of, of doing a job, or there were times that you just didn't want to go into, into work, that makes you just like everybody else, right? We all have times that, that we're inspired to do our work, and then there's times that we'd probably rather just sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Um, but whenever we talk about truly being burnt out, I think it, it, it becomes a numbness. And that's what I would say that the caregivers should watch out for. It becomes a numbness um, where we become almost, uh, almost where we disregard the suffering of other people. That clinically, we know that we need to run into the room and check that monitor and make sure that that, that uh, alarm is going off and make sure that the medicine is flowing right. But really we've got to remember that we're not just taking care of a body that is a person with a personality and a heart and a mind there too and whenever we disregard that person's fear uh, or their suffering or their their confusion when we turn kind of turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to that uh, so that we can get on to the next patient or so that we can go have a break uh, it, it's, I think patients will feel that whenever we start to become numbed, the suffering of others is a really good time for us all to um, reevaluate, right? 
And just because you get burnt out doesn't mean that that fire can't be relit. It certainly doesn't mean that. Uh, one of the things that I, that, I, that I try to teach a little more on an academic level is this thing called narrative nursing. So back in, in 2012, I got a master's in a field called narrative medicine. And that master's came from Columbia University in the city of New York. Um, and Columbia is the first narrative medicine program in the country, yet it only started three years before I was a student. So it's still kind of a, a new and emerging field. And what we do in narrative is we take the stories of healthcare and we try to turn those stories into something that healthcare professionals can learn from. And my specific work, I, I love working with nurses. So from my, my work in narrative medicine, I started branching out past doing this work for doctors and doing it with nurses. Uh, nurses have always been my kind of my target audience. They're typically my readers. And I thought that the principles that we were learning in the narrative medicine master's course were directly applicable to nurses. And that is how to use writing and re reflective writing and journaling to deal with compassion, fatigue, and burnout. Uh, how do we use those stories? How do we reclaim those stories that we witness every day how can we use those to help us stay engaged with our patients and engaged with our, our coworkers, uh, engaged with the mission of the hospital or the facility? Um, how can we use our experiences that we have every day to keep us in the mindset of caregiving so that burnout and compassion fatigue are I think they will come around for most everybody. A lot of people say that I've never been burnt out, but uh, I think there are a lot of people that have, it, I think it's just normal to at times question, am I making a difference? And if the answer comes up is no, that's when people feel like, okay, I'm truly burnt out. I'm not making a difference. Uh, just things to watch for if you are, if you're ever suffering from any of those things like numbness and asking that question, am I making a difference? And being aware of that and I think like you said too like overall for, I think forgiving yourself for it too is is big because I think I can't speak for everyone but I do think that at some point we all experience it as healthcare providers I I just think it's almost inevitable with how overloaded the system is and at a systems level right it's nothing personal uh, but we're all just trying to keep up with the system itself as much as possible. Now, how have you found, Marcus, that this has been beneficial for nursing in minimizing and, or at least coping better and reducing burnout? Is that yes? There, there actually there've been so many studies. There've been I, I'm jumbling over my thoughts here uh, because there have been studies since the mid '80s that that talk about how. Uh, Reflective writing, when done in a guided manner, uh, can help individuals overcome depression and anxiety and abuse and trauma. It's amazing the benefits we have whenever we write our stories, because when we write our stories, we also get to write the ending. And I think most everybody who has ever gone through something traumatic or life-changing or difficult 
when we write about those experiences, it helps us reframe those experiences. And if you come away, if you come away from those writing about those experiences, even with the idea of, well, this happened, there's nothing I can do to change it, but this is what I learned from my experience. If you have learned from that experience, you have redeemed that experience. And that's where I really want to try to uh, help keep nurses thinking about their experiences and coming back to work every single day. We know that the rates of burnout and compassion fatigue are just run rampant. Uh, I, I know nursing a lot better than any other, but it's certainly uh, in the medical world too, and I'm, I'm sure the numbers are just as high in the allied health professions. Uh, but yeah, we need, we need some tools and techniques to help us get by. Uh, dealing with this much suffering. And that's what I hope that in some of these guided, reflective writing sessions uh, that I'm doing for nurses, they're getting the, the chance to reevaluate their experiences and reframe them for a benefit. Now, what do you say to uh, someone who says they can't put more time into something like this? Mm. Something that I've yeah. In coaching people on yeah and yeah this is a common and you can just see it right like you're bringing something like this up like reflective journaling and things like that and they just look at you <laughs> like yeah you me to do this so it, it it's so interesting you know there I, I i'm a big fan of social media you know like the rest of the world and and i saw one day this this post from uh, I believe she was a nurse, but I couldn't be 100% sure about that. And she said, we had a talk today about getting out of burnout. And they told us, just spend five minutes a day being quiet and spend five minutes a day practicing self-care. They don't know that I have to get my kids off to school. I have to pack my husband's lunch. I've got to get to work. When I get to work, I've got this and this and this to do. They don't understand how hard it is to come by five minutes in my, and I sat there thinking, it took you more than five minutes to write this post. <laughs> we will put our time where we feel it is important, right? When it, when it all comes down to it, we will put our time where it feels important. And sometimes there is resistance because people, we, we're, we're not, a, in Western society, we're not exactly geared to say, hey, look at me, I fail. And even though compassion fatigue and burnout isn't a failure, it is sometimes hard to recognize within ourselves. And people probably don't even recognize, I would imagine that when you're dealing with compassion fatigue, uh, your, the people that are around you are going to spot it before you will. Sometimes we are blind to our own, uh, our own limitations, right? So it, when that, uh, when that, oh, how shall we say, pushback comes along uh, for doing some narrative and reflective writings, I, I try to remind people that it's, it's, not a, it's not a crime, it's not a weakness, it's not a sin for you to take an hour to sit through a class to try to get some perspective on the kind of things that you deal with, the difficulties that you deal with in healthcare. It, it's, it's not a weakness, it's not a failing, it's not a sin, right? You're not, you're not even being, um, 
disingenuous or, uh, or dismissive of your patients to do this. You're actually giving them a great gift. Because once again, how can, how can patients expect to get better if their caregivers aren't uh, fully engaged with the work? Right, and that's, that's the key, right, is we have to feel well ourselves in order to provide um, effective human-to-human connection and communication just fundamentally. And um, I, I like what you said there about failure, because I think you're so right about that, that we that way, that we failed uh, when we're burnt out or when we're struggling. When in reality, I in a way, but how we get out of it is what matters, uh, recognizing it and being compassionate with ourselves through that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a failing. It's just being human. We all fail, right? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And I think that's the thing, you know, in our professions is that we put our clinical status before our human status, right? And that's why I'm intentional to people more about who they are before they even tell me about what they do. Um, That's a great way of putting it. We put our clinical status before our human status. uh, Thank you for sharing that. And I think, um, I think, like you just said, we're all human, and that's just a part of it. Yeah. So, just in closing, Marcus, we're, we're just about to wrap up. It's been so great chatting with you. Uh, what final words of inspiration can you give healthcare providers and patients right now? I think with the pandemic going on, I'll just give you a quick example of what's going on at my hospital. Um, but my patients right now are in their all day. So they're not allowed to, um, for infection control purposes, um, they're not allowed to go into the halls or into the lounges and minimize uh, to give you some insight there. But so they're, you know, they're alone a lot, right? If not, then maybe emotionally and, and families and caregivers are not visiting right now because of this pandemic as well. So what words of inspiration could we, could we use um, to get us through this time? Well, you said we're alone a lot and we're all alone a lot, right? We're in isolation, even if we're, even if uh, for the other time that we're not on the clock, if we're not in the the hospital at the rehab facility or the uh, assisted living facility, even when we go home, we're alone. Or at least, you know, our, our, our human interaction has been so limited. Uh, This is, this is, this is big. Right. I mean, this is big uh, to. But I think the thing that we have to remember is that we're not alone. Other people are experiencing this right alongside with us. And sometimes it's easier to recognize uh, that other people are suffering more than our own suffering. So I hope what people will do is to simply stay aware, stay aware to how you're feeling during this crisis and stay aware to how your patients are also feeling during this crisis. Um, Especially, especially if patients have to spend uh, so much time just in their room, that's going to bring on some feelings of isolation. Um, That's going to bring on some of the additional fear and confusion, uh, vulnerability of just being a patient. So, I think the more that we can stay in tune with, with what we're seeing and witnessing around us, 
uh, the more we're able to stay in tune with ourselves. And then hopefully, hopefully we bring that all back to the idea of being present, being here. Uh, we can't always be present, but we can always be present in the moment that we're in at that moment. Beautifully said. I have a side question to ask of you right now. I just thought of something. Um, sure. So this is more pertaining to physios or physical therapists who are in the clinical space and outpatients. So because of this pandemic, many have been encouraged to close, right? Unless they're an essential service. So they're financially um, losing quite a bit and that adds stress to their lives. Um, so a lot of um, therapists are now pivoting into virtual care. And I, I mean, I know you're in the States and it might be more common in the States. Do you think there's... Um, and I, I keep putting you on the spot here, but do you think there um, is a strong case for compassionate communication through virtual care? I think we have to be even more intentional about communicating compassionately in virtual care because we we are distanced. Right. Um, and and I, I I love 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 we we here in the states we're we. It's only been in the last couple of weeks that telemedicine has really come to the forefront. Um, it's it's an area of, of, of healthcare that I feel like America has been uh, way behind for a long time, but now we've got it. And I, I think that when when we can um, when we can have that conversation with a patient on the other end of a video link or on the other end of a phone line you know we may just find that it brings us closer together maybe when we're looking at a video on a screen it might actually give us more of an opportunity to to connect with those patients um, but i think that it, it's really incumbent upon upon the 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 provider to um to let that patient know that hey this is going to be a little different right this is video this is virtual uh, but I want you to know that I'm I'm here for this time, uh, just like I would if you were coming into the office for a visit. And maybe again, even more so, checking in and staying aware of what what are you picking up from the patient? Are they comfortable? Are they uncomfortable? Are they um, are they trying to uh, trying to not say something? Are they trying to say something that's not being listened to? I think it gives us an, a really incredible opportunity for more active listening. Yes, yeah. I think it'll be, um, like you said, I think communication um, virtually is gonna be the most important tool in clinical care virtually. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't like to use it as a tool because it just is um, interaction, right? And I think it's really going to challenge some providers um, and, I, and I've seen it, and even for patients too, like patients are a bit apprehensive in, in trying as well from what I'm hearing. But I think like you said, if the provider is just kind of guiding them through and saying, you know, I'm here with you, um, we're kind of learning this together. Um, I think, yeah, I think it could strengthen for sure. I love, yeah. how, you, I love how you put that. Um, I think a lot of uh, providers will take that to heart moving forward because I know some of them are struggling right now. Um, so finally, Marcus, can you tell me, like, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? Um, whether it's for your resources, I know your tools on burnout uh, with narrative nursing, but your books to purchase, 
Facebook you for engagement. All that stuff. The, the best place to go is marcusengel.com and that's M-A-R-C-U-S-E-N-G-E-L.com. Um, Facebook is Marcus Engel Speaker. Uh, you can find me across all of the socials. Uh, and yeah, I'd love to hear from you if there's anything that I can do for you or your team or your facility. Um, I'd, I'd love to love to connect. Greatly appreciate that. And are you doing like virtual engagements too then? I would assume. I, I'm doing some virtual engagements, yes. And I'm also doing a, a weekly, uh, two weekly Zoom calls with healthcare leaders. And you can find more information about that uh, on facebook.com slash Marcus Engel Speaker. Uh, there's a registration there for that. And uh, it's about a 15 or 20 minute discussion every week. It, while we, it's called leading through crisis, a conversation with healthcare leaders, but you don't really have to be a healthcare leader. Uh, you can be a clinical professional of any sort and, or an operational professional, or even if you have no healthcare whatsoever, you can still come. We're, we love everybody. Awesome. Human <laughs> coming together. I love it. Thank you so much again for your time and for joining me so, um, uh, this evening, Marcus. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Sure thing. Thank you for having me. Have a great night. You too. So if you guys like this podcast, please subscribe and leave an honest review. Your feedback means everything to me. Your reviews are what moves this podcast forward, and I always appreciate receiving them. If you want to get a hold of me directly, reach out to me on social media. My handles are in the show notes. And you can always subscribe to my weekly newsletters at jennifergeorge.co so that we can stay connected. So until next time, thank you guys so much again for your ongoing support support.